In this episode, we're diving deep into the world of Parkinson's disease with our esteemed guest, Dr. Galliano Talion. She's been examining an unexpected intersection, bad cholesterol and Parkinson's disease risk. But there's a twist. Her research probes whether this connection might differ between the sexes. Get ready for an intriguing journey into the genetic intricacies of Parkinson's disease, cholesterol, and the nuanced differences between the sexes. Dr. Galliano Talion, I'm so grateful that you're here. Thank you so much for accepting my invitation. Thanks for having me. So um, you did your undergrad in biochemistry and human biology, but like, how did you end up doing machine learning and statistics? Yeah, thanks for the question. So I did my undergraduate at the University of Toronto um, in Ontario, and I really enjoyed my biochemistry courses and also human genetics. But at the end, so in my fourth year, I had the opportunity to do some undergraduate research in a real lab. So this research project was actually doing lab work. We were working on mice and I was um, genotyping their DNA and it was really exciting. But at that moment, I realized lab work was really not for me and what mm. I really liked was the analyzing part, the statistics and the yeah. math. So that's kind of how I transitioned after undergrad to um, a PhD using computational genetics and mm -hmm. machine learning. Yeah, cool. So uh, we're here to talk about your paper, Lipid Lowering Drug Targets and Parkinson's Disease, a sex-specific Mendelian randomization study. Uh, first of all, can you like uh, briefly explain to us what Mendelian randomization is and how it was applied in your study? Sure. So Mendelian randomization is a causal inference technique that uses genetic variants associated with an exposure. So let's break that down. What does that mean? So first of all, when I talk about causal inference techniques, I like to talk about a clinical um, trial. So mm -hmm. a randomized control trial mm -hmm. where you have two groups. You have a group who are taking the medication or the treatment mm -hmm. and the group that's not taking the medication or the treatment. Right. You follow them up over time and assess the outcomes, who has disease and who doesn't have disease or lesser. And Mendelian randomization, it actually works in a very similar manner. But the group assignment, instead of the investigator assigning individuals into treatment and non-treatment groups, these groups are predefined by our genetics. Mm -hmm. So individuals who have alleles or versions of genes that denote um, a higher level of um, LDL cholesterol, for instance, as um, we did in our um, research paper, they're in one group. Mm -hmm. And then individuals who have the other alleles, so the other versions of the genes that are not associated with higher LDL cholesterol, they are in that other um, group. Mm -hmm. And again, comparing those two groups over time to see if there's a difference in the output. Um, so I guess more practically speaking, Mendelian randomization essentially is testing if there's a causal relationship between an exposure, mm -hmm. which is often a modifiable risk factor, such as cholesterol, and an outcome, mm -hmm. which usually is a disease. Mm -hmm. Cool. So just for uh, my own curiosity, how does it compare with GWAS? Like, is it something that you do after, before, or like... It like doesn't have to do with GWAS at yeah, all. Yeah, absolutely has to do with GWAS. Mm -hmm. um, and 
Uh, Mendelian randomization is a type of post-GWAS analysis. Mm -hmm. So the genome-wide association study statistics are really what empower Mendelian randomization. Mm -hmm. Yeah, cool. Um, can you also explain the difference between the two samples, CIS-MR analysis and the standard MR analysis? Yes, absolutely. So in the paper, we conducted two types of Mendelian randomization. Um, and just to clarify, before we get into the CIS versus the standard, there are a broader category of Mendelian randomization mm -hmm. called one sample and two sample. Mm -hmm. So just to make sure um, no one's confused. Maybe we can uh, unpack the one sample. And before, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So one sample uses raw data. Mm -hmm. When I say raw data, I mean you have a group of individuals, you have their genotypes mm -hmm. at positions in the genome, and you have their disease status and their status of the modifiable risk factor, the exposure. Mm -hmm. And you're using the raw data to do a regression where you regress the genetically predicted exposure onto the output, the outcome, and see if there's um, a causal relationship between the genetically predicted exposure and the disease. Mm -hmm. So one sample, raw data. Two sample is what's really empowered by GWAS, the association summary statistics. Mm -hmm. So um, in our paper, we use the two sample approach, which is where you use summary statistics from two different samples. Mm -hmm. One sample for the exposure, so you have a GWAS, for your exposure. So in our case, we had a GWAS for LDL cholesterol levels. Mm -hmm. And you have a second data, second cohort, second sample for your outcome or disease. So we had a second GWAS um, data set for Parkinson's disease. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you were talking about CIS versus standard. Right. So CIS refers to um, nearby, same, similar. And in this context, CIS-MR, CIS-Mendelian randomization, is referring to the use of genetic variants within a gene. Mm -hmm. So the, the target here is a gene. Um, and the reason for CIS-MR is that it can be more interpretable. If you're using genetic variants that are associated with your exposure, so associated with LDL cholesterol in a gene, you know exactly what um, kind of biolog biological function of that gene is. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can imagine that this is important for downstream analyses such as drug repurposing um, and really understanding the biology. For standard MR, um, instead of using gene uh, variants that only fall into genes, basically you look genome-wide across all of the chromosomes and identify genetic variants genome-wide, regardless of whether or not they are in a gene, to be associated with the exposure of interest. So it's a broad sweep of variants that are associated with exposure rather than where CIS-MR uses a more refined approach variants that fall specifically into target genes of interest. Mm -hmm. And uh, before we move on, um, can you also explain like some of the applications of MR? So Mendelian randomization has become a very hot topic in recent years. Mm -hmm. um, it's become a hot topic for identifying causal relationships between modifiable risk factors and a variety of diseases, you name it. 
Um, heart disease has been something that's been studied a lot using Mendelian randomization um, and factors such as um, C-reactive protein levels, so um, a marker of inflammation in the body, also um, cholesterol levels and, and other, um, basically other exposures where there are medications or drugs already targeted to um, improve mm -hmm. um, those values. Those have gotten a lot of tension in Mendelian randomization because of the interest in um, improving health. You do your MR and what is uh, like uh, usually the next step after that? So after Mendelian randomization, um, and with regard to the bioinformatics or the computational side, um, if someone has done CIS-MR, meaning they have looked at genetic variants within genes, um, and if the result is significant, something that's often done is another approach called co-localization. Mm -hmm. And in co-localization, the idea is, is the causal variant for the um, exposure um, co-localizing with the signal for the um, disease? Mm -hmm. um, so basically identifying, is it the same signal or is it a different signal but just the same gene? Mm -hmm. I was wondering if you could uh, elaborate on the concept uh, of the sex agnostic approach and why it may not be the best method for this type of study. Yeah. So sex agnostic approach, what I refer to that is basically using genome-wide association study results that are derived from studies where uh, men and women are assessed together. The reason why sex agnostic studies may not always be the ideal um, approach is when you're dealing with a trait, either or both the exposure and the outcome, where there is evidence of sex differences, mm -hmm. particularly differences with regard to genetic heterogeneity between men and women. So for LDL cholesterol and for Parkinson's disease, so our exposure and our outcome here, both of them have um, marked sex differences. So for example, for Parkinson's disease, it's more prevalent in men than in women. Um, response to treatment differs between the two sexes, um, as does the symptoms. So there are some symptoms that are more prevalent in women and others that are more prevalent in men. Um, with regard to the genetic side of Parkinson's, there was a recent study published a couple of years ago where they conducted sex-specific genome-wide association, um, association analyses in um, men and in women separately. And this is actually the, um, the publication that helped us conduct our Mendelian randomization. Mm -hmm. So it was our second sample, the Parkinson sample. Um, in this study, they did not find marked um, sex, um, sex heterogeneity um, in the autosome, so chromosomes 1 to 22. Um, but looking at chromosome X was something that um, they noted as a future step and also, of course, increasing sample size to maybe have more statistical power to detect um, differing effects between the sexes. For LDL cholesterol and other um, traits similar, so triglycerides and um, HDL cholesterol as well, there are um, several locations in the genome where there are differences between men and women with regard to genetic associations. So for instance, there are certain signals, genetic signals, where the association between LDL um, 
and that variant is stronger in women and less strong in men. So there's clearly um, some um, dimorphisms happening at the genetic level for LDL cholesterol. So that really motivated us. And also given the, the clinical differences between men and women for cholesterol and for Parkinson's to undertake this sex-specific approach to see if we can identify relationships that may be present in men and not in women or vice versa. Mm -hmm. uh, how did you go about investigating the relationship between lipid-lowering drug targets and uh, Parkinson's disease? Yeah, so in our group, we're very interested in studying the genetic contributors for neurodegenerative disorders. So we decided to focus on Parkinson's here, given the recent availability of sex-specific summary statistics from uh, GWAS. For LDL, um, we're interested in assessing various pathways associated with Parkinson's. One of them is immune pathways, um, metabolic, cardiovascular um, pathways as well. And we decided to focus on LDL to begin with, given um, kind of the applicability, the transferability. So there are lots of medications um, to treat LDL cholesterol levels. Um, they target specific genes. We know what those genes are. So on a practical point of view, um, it facilitates CIS-MR, again, more interpretability. And there are very large-scale genome-wide association study results that have been stratified by sex for LDL cholesterol. So basically, it was a combination of um, interests in our lab and mm -hmm. with the data that's currently available that motivated the study. Mm -hmm. Yeah, since you mentioned data, can we also talk about the genetic data sets that you used in your study? Yes. So for the Parkinson's disease study, it was a recent sex-stratified GWAS published a couple of years ago that I had mentioned. And for the LDL cholesterol, mm -hmm. so again, in two sample, you have to make sure that the data set for the exposure is a different data set than that from the outcome or else um, uh, kind of assumptions uh, collapse. So for the cholesterol, we actually used data from the UK Biobank, which is a very large cohort of half a million individuals recruited in the United Kingdom. Um, they're around middle-aged, um, around 54% of them are, are female. Um, so that was our data set behind the, the exposure. Mm -hmm. And how does your uh, work fit into the broader context of research into modifiable risk factors for Parkinson's disease? Yeah, so there is a lot of effort going on for neurodegenerative disorders and, of course, other disorders as well, trying to identify causal mechanisms specifically through modifiable risk factors, um, obviously because that will be key for personalized medicine and improving health outcomes. Um, and for neurodegenerative disorders, um, you know, I personally think it's really uh, a critical need given the lack of effective treatments uh, for Parkinson's, for Alzheimer's, and for many other disorders that affect mainly the elderly. Um, so this is key, and I, I feel like a lot of people are working in this domain, not necessarily 
in the biostatistics computational level, but there's also people who are doing work in animal models, um, in vitro, in clinical studies, etc. So using um, a variety of resources to test the possible effects of modifiable risk factors on disease progression, disease onset, um, and disease outcomes. Mm-hmm. Um, so although your uh, research didn't find a causal relationship, uh, I was just wondering uh, if you could talk about uh, any surprising or unexpected findings that came out of this uh, paper. Yeah, thanks. I love this question. So our surprising finding is going to emphasize how nerdy I am. Um, mm. So when one of our algorithms that we used for Mendelian randomization, so there's um, a couple of techniques that we did, a couple of sensitivity analyses, just to confirm our results, um, since the different um, approaches, they all have different assumptions, different limitations. So it's standard procedure to um, use a couple just to um, check for consistency and make sure things look good. So one approach that we had used, we used um, two computational packages, um, both in the R language, to, to run this test. It's called MR Egger. And we noticed that if we used one package, results were quite different than if we used another package. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the, the nerdy person assigned me got super excited about this. Um, so we delved into the code of the two packages, contacted um, actually the developers of both, had really engaging conversations about statistics and mm-hmm. assumptions. Um, we already, we sorted it out in the end, but it was just, um, it was, it was really nice actually to, to get, um, you know, my, my feet wet in the code and to really explore further, um, at what was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, so you encourage future work using causal inference uh, techniques to better understand sex spe- uh, specific effects. Can you expand on what kind of research you hope to see in the future and how it might help us better understand the complex disease risks that vary between sexes? Yeah, thank you. So in my group, we're very interested in precision medicine. And I believe that sex-specific analyses is a key way of moving towards precision medicine. So currently in the clinic for a lot of um, diseases, um, differences between men and women are not always accounted for. And this can lead to to bias or um, inequitable care um, in, in these groups. And my goal is um, really to incorporate um, sex-specific analyses to try to help fill this gap, to try to move towards precision medicine that is targeted um, differently between men and women. So taking into account genetic um, and underlying biological differences to to really improve um, health outcomes for, for both. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... I was also wondering uh, how you use machine learning in your group. So machine learning is one of the approaches that we use to answer and to move forward in the question of using sex-specific approaches. So one project that we currently have in the group is developing sex-specific prediction models. Um, Currently, these prediction models are for coronary artery disease. Mm-hmm. So what we're doing here is we're currently trying to get a baseline. So we're taking several different machine learning models and deep learning models. So each have their own assumptions. 
each have their own advantages and disadvantages and trying to get a, a baseline of which model performs best um, and, you know, which model is most computationally intensive, mm-hmm. which is, um, you, know, um, you know, most robust. So we're doing this in the UK Biobank data set. So the same data set that we used for the LDL cholesterol um, values. Um, the reason why we chose this data set is simply because of the vast size. So for machine learning, your training set, it's critical to have large sample size, a lot of different um, features, and um, to improve the training. So UK Biobank is what we chose for that. And currently, our investigation is combining both non-genetic, so environmental, clinical factors, um, in addition to genetic variants throughout the genome to develop these sex-specific models um, for coronary artery disease. Mm-hmm. Again, coronary artery disease, another disease where there are quite striking differences um, in, in outcomes and in response to treatment, et cetera, between men and women. So an ideal setting to, to test these models. Um, so this work is ongoing, but we're really excited about it. And the ultimate goal is to, in the end, have models that are specific to women, specific to men, that can be used to help identify individuals who are at a higher risk of developing coronary artery disease. So interventions can be done sooner and they have longer, healthier lives. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm just wondering, uh, as a researcher, what is like... Uh, the algorithm that you have used the most so far in like in your whole career, a machine learning algorithm? Yeah. So it really depends on the question you're asking. Um, we always do like to start with the so-called basic machine learning models. So for instance, a regression. So a penalized regression where you have um, penalties applied to a normal regression mm-hmm. is um, a fairly simple form of machine learning. But I feel simple isn't always a bad thing. If you can accomplish the same task with less computational resources and a more interpretable model, that's a pretty good thing. So we usually start with some type of penalized linear regression. Um, random forest, so a collection of decision trees, we often also use, again, for interpretability. Um, there are caveats um, and issues with um, both of those methods. But I feel that's the benefit of employing many and seeing um, if we can create some sort of ensemble approach. So an approach that takes advantage of the benefits from the various methods to create an optimal model. Um, For um, um, deeper machine learning, so less standard machine learning techniques, Currently, for the questions at hand, we're using a multi-layer perceptron. Um, the reason why was really due to the data. So we don't have um, imaging data where you would probably use a different approach. Um, we're not currently using longitudinal data. Again, where you would probably uh, also use a different approach for that. But yeah, I'm a, a real um, advocate for trying multiple methods. And the more complex may not necessarily be the best answer. And that's the the joys of research is to explore and figure out uh, what is the optimal model. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, as someone who switched from wet lab to dry lab, how did you learn programming and all of that yourself? 
So I, I learned programming while um, doing my PhD at the University of Toronto. So it was really hands-on experience um, for the Research Alliance of Canada, formerly called Compute Canada. They held summer workshops and workshops throughout the year. I think I joined like maybe every single one of those. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was really practical experience um, and trial and error. Um, I also should say I had a lot of colleagues in the lab um, and um, in other labs at the university who were really key at helping me um, if I had any questions. So this environment um, was also quite ideal. Um, it was a bit of a learning curve, but uh, I was highly motivated. I knew this is this is what I really wanted to do. So it was an enjoyable learning curve. Hmm. Uh, do you also like from time to time miss wet lab? No. <laughs> That, and that's that. That's a simple answer, but actually, it's not at all. Mm-hmm. I don't regret it. I feel like having that experience, it was definitely a benefit. I have a greater appreciation mm-hmm. of the genotypes that I receive yeah. um, having that experience in the mm-hmm. wet lab. But um, it, yeah, it wasn't for me for sure. Mm-hmm. And uh, since we're talking about machine learning, how excited are you as a researcher about all these new language models? And like all these cool stuff uh, that you can do with them. Yeah, I think it's a very exciting time. Um, I just um, want to make sure that people are using them in ethical ways. And mm-hmm. um, that's my main concern. But I think um, the benefit of machine learning is that it can help with getting tasks done in an efficient way, if done in a ethical manner um, and a transparent manner. Mm-hmm. Um Thank you so much. I think that was great. Uh, uh, let's wrap up with this question that I want to like start asking each guest since a previous episode. So in your journey, what has contributed the most to your success? Yes, I was looking forward to this question. For me, there are several things. The first would be having balance. Mm-hmm. So I feel like for me throughout my career, I've always been a type of person who has a lot of hobbies, likes to do things outside of um, the computer. Um, that being said, I 100% find joy in my research. I, I wouldn't be in my current position if, I, if it didn't make me happy. I'm a strong believer in doing what makes you happy. But I feel like having a balance of doing external other things, it just makes um, the research that much more enjoyable. So in my spare time, I like to write a lot. Um, of course, I'm writing a lot of scientific articles, but I'm not referring to that. I'm referring to other forms of writing. So I've written several, uh, I think, th- three articles that have been published in Nature um, about basically career things. Mm-hmm. So kind of my experience um, in academia um, with regard to teaching, with regard to finding a faculty position, etc. So that brings me a lot of um, um, joy um, writing. I also do writing um, that's completely non-scientific related. So I have like an article I wrote about my trip to Paris and my trip mm-hmm. to London, things like that. Um, I really enjoy writing and then it's um it's a nice balance um with uh the research mm-hmm. um and I guess for advice I would give individuals who are um you know in graduate school or thinking about continuing continuing in academia is 
um, to really make sure that your underlying reason of why you're doing grad school or why you're pursuing uh, research um, comes from a good place. So meaning you personally, this is what you want, not what someone else wants or not what someone is expecting from you. Um, I feel that when it, yeah, when it comes from the right place, it's really enjoyable and you get a lot more out of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I completely agree. Thank you so much again uh, for showing up. I think uh, that was great. Thank you. All right. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please leave us a great review on your favorite podcasting platform. And I'll see you again next time.